Thanks for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. If you're in D.C., we'd love for you to come and join us and become a part of the church family. If you're outside of D.C., we'd love for you to find a church family to get plugged into and invest your life in where you can be held accountable and they can care for you. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can give online at redemptionhilldc.org. Well, happy Easter, Redemption Hill. He is risen. He is risen indeed. The, the, you know, it's amazing to me that um, trying to do what we can and utilize technology, we, um, for this Sunday, actually set up the pictures of our members here in the sanctuary. And so it's, it's incredibly emotional for me to see all of your faces, and it just makes me wish that we were all here together, celebrating together as we do every Sunday, but especially on Easter Sunday. Um, and so let's pray, and then we're going to talk about the importance of Easter. We're going to continue a series in the book of Romans together. And so if you're new, you'll be jumping right in with us, and we're so glad that you've joined us. But let's pray as we continue. Father, <coughs> we thank you that you are kind and good and loving. We thank you that, that your kindness is extended to us in ways that we could never expect, never plan for, never predict, and also in ways that go beyond what we could ever hope for or dream of. And right now, we're in a, all of us, every one of us is in a state of uncertainty and fear and some anxiety and not knowing um, how long some of the limitations are going to go on and not knowing whether people are going to stay healthy. And, and in all of this, it's, it, it's hard to celebrate. It's hard to celebrate when we're stuck at home and unable to do the things we normally like to do. And so it's impacting every aspect of our lives and still, um, still we have the ability to be able to see beyond. And so today we pray that you would set our eyes on hope that you'd show us where we, can, where we can have our hope and locate our hope in a place that is sure and that can never be taken away. And so we thank you that Easter Sunday comes, that after the darkness of Friday and after the darkness and silence of Saturday, that light breaks through, the sun shines, and Easter has come, that he is risen. And so we pray this in the name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, the first Sunday, the disciples were all locked in a home together. Jesus had been killed. They had heard him say over and over again that he, they were going to Jerusalem so that he could be handed over to the authorities, so that it was necessary for him to suffer and to die and to be raised on the third day, and still they never quite caught the message. And so on Saturday, they found themselves grieving and mourning and confused, and everything was uncertain, and they were stuck in one room together. Can you imagine that? Like that... We can relate to Easter Saturday more than most of us ever wanted to right now. And that's why this is such good news to us, that much like we find ourselves today, they were afraid. They were shaken by the idea of death, uncertain of their own future, and scared because they had seen someone they loved who had been killed. They had lost their friend and their teacher. Their lives had been turned upside down, and, and they were locked away in a house together. And on Sunday morning... The women, Mary Magdalene and some women, went to the tomb where they had laid Jesus on Friday afternoon, and it was empty. Light broke through the darkness, 
The two, the, it, it means that life broke the reign of sin and death. And so that's why we say Jesus is alive and why we're able, able to say on Easter Sunday, he is risen. He is risen indeed. And that's, you know, that, that's important. I've, I've had some people ask me if the, if the grammar of that is right. Shouldn't it be it, he has risen? He, but it's actually intentional because what we're proclaiming is that the, the resurrection of Jesus was not just a resuscitation. It was a, a resurrection to new life and eternal life into glory. And so he now is the risen Lord and Savior. It is not just a past event. It is true today because he is risen and he ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. That's why we began with the call to worship out of 1 Corinthians 15, which is one, possibly one of the oldest Christian creeds, what it means to believe in Christ and to be a Christian is to believe that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then the twelve. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. When Paul wrote those words, he was inviting people, saying most of the people who experienced the risen Lord Jesus are still living. You can go and talk to them and ask them. There were eyewitnesses of this real historical event that Jesus, the Christ, was killed under Pontius Pilate, was placed in the tomb, and on the third day raised from death to life. This is what we believe as Christians. This is what we celebrate on Easter Sunday and every Sunday that we're together is that he is risen. He's risen indeed. Thomas Arnold, a professor of modern history at Oxford, said there is no one fact in the history of mankind proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort than the fact that Christ died and rose from the dead. And so today, we are in a series as a church in the book of Romans, and we're going to continue that. We're in Romans chapter 6. If you have a Bible, you can turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. The words are going to come on the screen for you. If you don't own a Bible, you can find all kinds of versions online if you search for it. Um, or if you let us know at Redemption Hill, we'll ship you one. Just let us know and send an email and we'll get one to you so you can have a copy for yourself. But today as we look at this text, it's critical for us because today's text shows us not just the fact that Christ is risen from the dead, but that it also shows us the implications for our lives, what it means for us if that is true, which indeed it is. That's the news we proclaim. And so Romans chapter 6, the first 11 verses. Paul has been making this argument that we are either in Adam or in Christ, but he goes on to say, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who died has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. 
Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this passage for, for us is an incredible text that hits perfectly for us on the Easter Sunday. What's been incredible for me as we've walked through this is seeing God, the timeliness of these passages that we've set up in advance, that, that as our first time that we weren't able to meet together physically as a church, we were in Romans 5 at the beginning where it talks about suffering and that suffering leads to, builds endurance and endurance leads, builds character and, and that that leads us to hope and saw how suffering leads us to hope. And we, or we looked before that at Abraham and when, what it's like to live when God's promises don't seem to be coming true. And so the timeliness of these texts continues. Now we are in Romans 6, seeing Easter Sunday. And again, if you're new, um, this, 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 we're in this series in the book of Romans. And so if you're not part of Redemption Hill, I want to say thank you for joining us. We're so glad that you've been able to join us, even in this strange, scattered fashion. Um, one of the benefits of the time that we live in is that we have the ability to share this together, even in scattered places. And so thank you for joining us. Being in the middle of a series doesn't mean it's going to be hard for you to jump in. You'll, I think you'll do fine sticking with us. And if you, if you uh, tune in with us next week, we're going to continue with the next passage and would love for you to come back and join us for that as well. And so I, what you need to hear, though, if you're not part of our church, is that Easter is the biggest celebration of the year for us. And so this one is particularly difficult to be apart from each other. The reason it's the biggest celebration of the year is because this is at the core of what it means to be a Christian. This is the good news we call the gospel. It's what we actually, that's why the church gathers on Sundays, is because we are celebrating every week that is on the first day of the week, on Sunday morning, that Christ was raised from death to life. And so we gather every Sunday to celebrate the resurrection, but Easter Sunday is a particular celebration through Holy Week and through Good Friday and through Silent Saturday and to Resurrection Sunday. And so that's an important foundational point. That what we capture, what's captured in 1 Corinthians 15 is a summary of the core of the doctrine of Christianity, that, that Christ died in, a, in our place for our sin in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day and appeared to his disciples, starting with Peter. And so Christianity is primarily a belief in what God has done for us. It's not primarily a political affiliation, which is a hard thing to believe now because it's often spun that way. Christianity is not primarily an ethic or a code that you're trying to live by morally. It's not primarily a system of rules for behavior regulation. That's, those things are all what Christianity gets twisted into by people, but those aren't what it is first and foremost. True Christianity tells us the story that we find ourselves within. It tells us the story that, that God is a good creator who made all things and that he loves you. He loves every person on earth. We are made in his image and in his likeness. And he loves us in spite of our own failures and shortfalls and rebellion and, and disdain for him and, the, and just pursuing our own way when we know things are wrong. And still, in order to come and chase after us, he took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and lived a sinless, perfect life 
the only person to ever be holy and righteous. And that is what, why he was put on the cross, that, that people could not handle it as he challenged the authority systems of his time. He was put on the cross and died in our place for our sin, that he bore the weight of the penalty for humanity's rebellion against God, that it's through his broken body and spilled blood that we can find healing and hope because he was the perfect sacrifice for us, that he was laid in a tomb and passed through death as the one to go before us into it. But again, what we celebrate on Easter Sunday is that death cannot hold him, that the grave could not hold him, that the, the authorities could not pin him down, that, that sin and death don't win in the end, but instead he was raised from death to life. And so it has been for centuries the Paschal greeting for Christians to say to each other, he is risen, he's risen indeed. And so this now, when Jesus was raised to life, his resurrection gives us the promise of life in fullness now to really have a perspective, God's perspective on how we're designed to live and hope beyond the darkness of death and disease. Because it tells us that whatever comes and whatever happens and wherever, wherever our life goes and the lives of our loved ones go, that there is something through death that when we go through that veil and get to the other side, that Christ is there and has gone before us and that he promises to make all things new for his glory and restore all things for his glory and that if you are in Christ, then you have a promise that you'll be a part of his glory in the end. And so this is what Romans has been building toward up until this point. The first, if, if you haven't been with us in our series, then the summary of the first four chapters are that we are justified or declared righteous, our standing before God is guaranteed by God's grace alone, accomplished in Jesus, and it's through faith alone. And so all we can do, we don't earn our way to God. We can't earn our way through good works and the law, but, but it's by faith alone that God's grace is given to us and that, uh, that we are given Christ's righteousness. And so we continue then to see that and to celebrate that. But that tells us then why Paul is saying what he's saying. And so in the previous passage, he said, you're either in Adam or in Christ. That every one of us is born in Adam. We're born in what the Bible calls sin. We're born in a posture of rebellion against God. This is something that we see in every toddler who's ever lived. I think people, in, in my experience, people have a, have, have a tendency to question original sin if they don't have children. And think, no, people are inherently good. And then you have a child, and when that child looks at you and sets their little jaw and takes their pizza mush from their tray and throws it on the floor, and you know that they're doing it to spite you. They don't even have words yet, but they know how to get under your skin, and you find yourself irrationally angry as a parent. That, those are moments when you go, yeah, this is a little sinner. This person understands rebellion. This person has already inhabited these things. And so Paul is saying in, in chapter 5, we are all born in Adam, but then in God's eyes, there's two ways that, that God sees humanity. You are in Adam or in Christ, that Christ is the second Adam who came for us, where Adam brings death, Christ brings life. And so now, that's where he begins chapter six here and says, so what shall we say then? Everything's by God's grace. We can't earn anything before God. And so what should we say? Let's, maybe we should say, let's just sin all we can and do what we know is wrong because the more that we sin, the more God's grace will cover that and God's grace will abound all, all that much more. 
And so he's anticipating this argument where, and he's probably had that argument thrown at him, saying, Paul, you talk about grace too much. What about obedience? And so he says, so is this what we should say? Sin, that grace may abound? He says, no, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And then he gets into an understanding of our union with Christ and what it means to actually be a Christian that is profound. What he shows us in this passage is that there is hope in life and death. So that's our big idea today is that there is hope in life and in death. And first, within this, only three observations today. The first hope we have is that we are united with Jesus in his death. Now, that might not sound hopeful if you don't know the gospel or haven't heard it before. And so let me explain that we are united with Jesus in his death. This is where our hope comes from. Death in Scripture, in the Bible, is, includes physical death, but it's more than that. There's, it's more than just a physical determination. We are, we are eternal beings. And so death doesn't end you. There's something in your future beyond death. The question is, is your eternity going to be with God in glory, or is your eternity going to be God turning you over to yourself in what the Bible calls hell? And so with this, but we are eternal. And so death is more of a legal designation more often, especially in Romans, that we are separated from God. And this is the, the result of the consequences of sin at work within us. Now, we talked about last week that sin in Romans 5 and 6 and 7, this section of the Bible, is not just about the things that we do wrong. I think when we, most of us think about sin, we think about it that way. Like, oh man, I missed that one whoops, I won't do that again. And so we wonder, why, is, why does that offend God when we just make a mistake? We're human, we make mistakes. But sin in Scripture, and in Romans in particular here, is personified. Sin enters into life, it pays wages, it reigns and rules. It, it, it is a, a power that we are caught underneath and that is destroying us and ravaging our souls. And so that is what was put to death in the death of Christ. That's why it took God taking on flesh and Christ dying and going through death in order to ever overcome and overtake sin. That's how serious the offense of sin and the power of sin is. And so that's what we read um, in, in our second paragraph today is that, that Christ himself died, in, in, in the death he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. And so the, Christ went to the cross in order to, in order to atone for our sin and to create a way for us to be forgiven by God. And so what John Stott, one commentator, said is that what was crucified with Christ was not a part of me then called my old nature, but the whole of me as I was before I was converted. And so we need to understand that because I think in, in, Christians will talk about this sometimes and, and quote other passages of Scripture and think, okay, the old, you know, my flesh, what part is, of me is my flesh? You know, what, what part of me is my sin nature versus what has been redeemed by God? And how do we discern those things? The language of Romans 6 is you are in Adam or in Christ and everything you are pre-Jesus, pre-turning to Christ, that has to be put to death with Christ, the whole of you. This is the costliness of what Jesus calls us to. And that doesn't mean, so, so putting our sin to death does not mean that we don't want to sin anymore and that that desire is going to be gone, as if we're totally desensitized to sin. 
Um, it, it's still going to linger, and we'll talk about that, about why. I think we think about this sometimes, too. Like, why, does it still, why is the temptation still there? We think about it as if we should, you know, if that's been put to death, then when we see things that are dead, they usually aren't responsive, right? There's a dead squirrel in the bush by our alley. Normally not something I would really notice, but when you spend your entire life right now and your kids spend their entire life either in your house or in your alley, you just notice things. There's a dead squirrel there. And um, our neighbor kid is especially fascinated with it. And so they're poking it with sticks and kind of kicking it with their feet. And then it's like, gosh, we're supposed to wash our hands anyway right now, but I need to wash all of you because there's the risk of disease and also because you're touching dead animals (laughs) in an alley. Um, But like when they kick at the squirrel, the squirrel doesn't move. It doesn't respond. That's our experience with dead things is that they go limp. And so when we think about putting our own sin to death, sometimes I think we get frustrated because we're like, well, how, why do I still have a sensitivity to it? I think we also misinterpret this idea of putting our sin to death as that sin just becomes inappropriate for us. That now it's like, well, you should do something else. It's, well, no, it's saying in the passage that if you're in Christ, we died, not we ought to die. I think sometimes we think about it as sin slowly weakening in us, that, that it's not dead yet, or that we've disavowed sin, but that's not it, because this is Christ's action, Christ's action not ours. And Or we think about that we're no longer guilty of our sins, which is true, but I don't think that's the meaning here. And so here, I think what it's saying is that instead, it's, it's talking about the reign of sin, the rule of sin is what's in chapter 5, and that if you are in Jesus, you have been transferred from one kingdom, the kingdom of darkness and death, into the kingdom of light and life. And so in Colossians chapter 1, that language is used where it says for us exactly that, that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. And so this is what it means to be in Christ, is we put all of our old self to death so that we can live in him. But we still experience some of the lingering effects of sin and death, right? We still experience physical death. We still experience temptation. We still experience wickedness. We still experience our own fickle hearts. The best I can think with this is that I don't think it's actually that far outside of our experience. In most wars, including I was just reading this past week, that um, about the Revolutionary War um, and the surrender at Yorktown. The surrender at Yorktown, where Cornwallis, General Cornwallis surrendered to General Washington, was the decisive end of the war, effectively. The British knew that they didn't have the resources to continue the fight after that point. And it, that happened in October 1781. The Treaty of Paris that officially ended the war was signed in September of 1783, almost two years later. And there were battles and skirmishes and attacks that continued for those two years. The British had lost, the war was over, the Americans had won, and yet battles continued to rage even though the war had been decided. And that, I think, is closer to what we experience in our lives. That if you're in Christ, the battle's been won, the, ba- the war has been won. Battles still rage, and you'll still see the fights around you. But the war has been won. Now, the illustration Paul gives us for this is baptism. He says, you've been baptized into Christ's death, united with him in his death. And if you have been baptized, united with him in his baptism and his death, 
Therefore, um, just as Christ was raised by the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in a newness of life. And so baptism is his illustration. And there are two sacraments that Jesus gave to the church, sacraments or ordinances, commands that he gave to us. One of those is baptism. The second is the Lord's Supper. In baptism, it's the entry point. That's when you make a proclamation that you believe that God has saved you by Christ's finished work. Baptism is how we show that we are part of God's covenant family. And on Easter Sunday is one of our favorite Sundays as a church to celebrate baptisms together. Um, we, we actually have people right now who are ready to be baptized, and we're looking forward to t- today to be able to celebrate, and we're going to celebrate with them, and so that's kind of on hold right now is because um, they want to be a, the whole church family to be a part of it when we celebrate that together, and so we're looking forward to it, but uh, baptism is, it shows something of the gospel. It's a portrait of the gospel that refers to what Christ has done. You see, when we put somebody under the water, it's, it's a profession of faith saying that they believe that Christ is who Scripture says he is, that he indeed, as we read, died in our place for our sin, was buried in a tomb, and raised on the third day from death to life, and they're committing to live their life for him. And so we put somebody below the water to show unity with Jesus in his death, raised from the water to show unity with Jesus in his life and resurrection. And, and it's a, a symbol that is a beautiful portrait, but it's not just a symbol or an action on our part. And I think there's confusion about what baptism is too. Baptism is not how we are buried with Christ, but it demonstrates that we were buried with Christ. Baptism itself doesn't save us, but it shows that Christ has saved us. It's a celebration that, that the time that we were buried is when Christ was buried. And just as we sinned in Adam, we were buried with Christ. And so there are two commentators, theologians that were helpful. John Stott says on this, death and resurrection of Jesus are not only historical facts and significant doctrines, but also personal experiences since through faith baptism, we have come to share in them ourselves. Douglas Moo said, baptism functions as shorthand for the conversion experience as a whole. As such, it is the instrument by which we are put into a relationship with the death and burial of Christ. It is not, then, that baptism is a symbol of dying and rising with Christ, nor is it that baptism is the place at which we die and rise with Christ. Dying and rising with Christ refers to the participation of the believer in the redemptive events themselves. The ultimate basis for Paul's appeal in this chapter is not what happened when we were baptized, but what happened when Christ died and when Christ rose. And so our baptism unites us with him in those redemptive events themselves. When we read about the death of Christ and his burial, burial, our baptism unites us with him in those events. We read about the resurrection of Jesus. Our baptism unites us in his life. And so it's a call that Jesus puts on us, too. His call to discipleship in Luke chapter 9 is that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus' call was always a call to die. And listen, it's for the whole self. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? 
And this is the language that Paul used in another letter that he wrote in, in Galatians chapter 2 when he and Peter had a confrontation over, over Gentiles and, law, and the law and the law's place anymore. He said, Peter, we can't keep turning back to the law, but instead, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And so we are united with Christ in his death, and our old selves are put to death, and yet we don't hold people down under the water for very long when we baptize them. Because it doesn't stop there, and that's the beauty of what we celebrate on Easter Sunday, is that, that we are united with Christ in his death, but second, we are united with Jesus in resurrection life. And resurrection life is better than pre-resurrection life. I think for most of us, we'd like to skip just to the end because we know that our story has twists and turns that we don't expect. We know that our story goes into suffering and sorrow that we don't want and we don't want any part of. And so we'd like to skip to, and just stick with life throughout. And, and, but the biblical storyline over and over and over again is that, that life through suffering and into death puts us in a position where only God can act and raise us from death to life. And that resurrected life is better than what we ever experienced before it. When I got to, I, this past fall, I got to tour um, the Holy Land in Israel and Palestine and various places and to see some of these sites firsthand, to see and stand in and pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, to see where Jesus prayed in agony, to see the dungeons that he was held in, to see um, the, the places that, and to see tombs that were at least like the tomb that he was put in. And so there are two major locations. There's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which um, actually just closed its door for the first time since I believe the 300s and, or 1300s. It's been a long time. And, they, and so seeing those doors closed, and, um, but the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is traditionally where the place of the skull, Golgotha, is and was, and where the tomb that Christ was laid in was. There's a massive church built over the site. There's another place just outside of the city, outside of the Damascus Gate, called the Garden Tomb, and another hill that kind of looks, the rocks kind of look like a skull, and now it's a bus station, uh, like a parking lot. Um, which actually would kind of make sense with the story of where Golgotha was. Um, but then there's this garden tomb that's more of the setting, and it was, it's dated to the same kind of time period. And so there's all kinds of discussions about which tomb was it. Was it the tomb that's under the big shrine in the church? Is it, they've got some other tombs around the back that are cut into the rock raw that date to the right time period. Was it the garden tomb outside the city? Here's the one thing that every one of those places had in common. Every one of those tombs was empty. There's nobody there. And I don't think it matters which of the ones was the one that Jesus was in because he wasn't there that long. His body was laid there, but he was raised from death to life. The tombs were empty. And we're told in 1 Corinthians 15 that, that when we make the proclamation of that Christian creed that, that, Christ was, that Christ died and was buried for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. When we say he is risen, he's risen indeed, then it goes on to tell us later on in the same chapter, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 
but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to the God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So what it's telling us is Christ is the first fruits from among the dead. His resurrection is the first example of the work that God has to raise people from the dead. He's the one we look to as the guarantee that that, that saving power exists and the power of life over death exists. And that and so as the first fruits from among the dead, he's the one to look to because we will, if we enter into death with him as our hope, we have the guarantee of resurrection life on the other side. This is why we celebrate on Easter Sunday. Again, it wasn't a resuscitation. It was a resurrection to glory. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, because Christ is eternal, so also is our spiritual life. For Christ is our life, and through faith he shines into our hearts the rays of grace which abide forever. You see, there is nothing we need this week more than this kind of hope. This is an illustration people have used often, but I think it applies that right now we, we and this is crass, but we're, we, right now we have no sports. We have no baseball. It was supposed to have started. We were looking at the Nats coming back to defend a World Series title. There's question about fall sports. There's, the Olympics have been shut down and moved back at, la- at least a year. And it's created a massive gap for a lot of our society. Um, and so it's interesting that like radio stations and TV stations are replaying a bunch of old games, which you'd expect them to do. And, um, and I like that because I enjoy watching reruns of Pinnacle Moments more than watching the actual event. Like, we all hate the Patriots, right, Al? <laughs> and, and yet, if I'm a Patriots fan right now, if I wanted to do something to like take the stress of life and this isolation and this spreading pandemic off of myself, I'd go and watch that Super Bowl and enjoy every minute of them being down 28 to three at halftime. Because you know in the end they came back and won and you'd be watching it all with the end in mind with the glory to come. And so this, there's something to this that, that for us, if this is true, if Jesus is really raised from the dead, if he really is the first fruits from among the dead, then, then this is exactly what we need to know because the end is guaranteed for us. And we don't know what it's going to be like between here and there and the suffering we're going to have to go through, but the fear of a new virus sweeping the globe, the reality of death around us, the screeching halt to activity and life, being stuck in close proximity with people, having, having to wear a mask to go to a grocery store, the fear of the economic fallout that's going to come for this personally and broadly, like all of those things we need to keep in a perspective that yes, they are real, yes, there is suffering, but if we have hope in Christ that there is life through death, then there is nothing that can, that can tear us down and keep our souls from hoping. And our hope is not just wishful thinking. It is settled confidence that the word of God is true and that the resurrection is the guarantee we have for life eternally. And what that means is, as Frederick Buechner said, that means that the worst in our, thing in our life is never the last thing about the world. It's the next to last thing. The last thing is the best. 
It's power from on high that comes down into the world, that wells up from the rock-bottom worst of the world like a hidden spring. Can you believe it? The last, best thing is the laughing deep in the hearts of the saints, sometimes our hearts even. Yes, you are terribly loved and forgiven. Yes, you are healed. All is well. And so we are united with Jesus in his death. We are united with Jesus in resurrected life. And third, and finally, we are united with Jesus as we live this life. That it's, this isn't just something future-looking. This is something real now. In Galatians chapter 2, that passage we already read continues. So it, it says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And then he goes on. He says, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So he's saying this is the hope that he has that drives his life. That's the same themes that we see in Romans chapter 6. Then look at what we saw in our passage today. We were buried with him in baptism in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might do what? Walk in a newness of life. But it goes on. Well, if we're united with him as death, we'll certainly be united with him in his resurrection. One who has died has been set free from sin, so if you've died with Christ, we'll also live with him. And we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For death, the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And how it closes out this paragraph is by saying, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so it's a call to us to decide what is your life going to reflect. Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? Are you going to continue in self-indulgence or are you going to lay yourself down with the hope of abundance in Jesus? We are either in Adam or in Christ, in death or in life. And if we turn to Christ, it means that we lay down everything about ourselves before him. And, but the promise so far outweighs the cost. Because the suffering that we face now, whatever sorrow and pain we face now, we know that Jesus has gone before us, that he will meet us in the depths of the shadow, and that God alone can bring life from death. And so our lives will be impacted It'll change the shape of our, the, our view on the world and our view of ourselves and our view of others. Now, if you're a Christian, you should never be surprised when a non-Christian sins. That should never, you should never be taken aback. And your calling as a Christian isn't to impose an ethic to try to do behavior modification on people who don't claim Christ. If you're a Christian, you would say that that's actually in perfect alignment with our nature. That, yeah, if you're in Adam or in Christ, then Christians shouldn't be surprised by sin. And we just assume that everyone sins. Everyone is under that power. But if, a, if you're in Christ, then for you to pursue sin is actually against your identity. You've laid your flesh down, and everything we are in our flesh was put to death in Jesus. And so to do something outside of God's call on us is to forget what Christ has done for us and that we are in him. But be, we need to be careful here, too. 
because this is not just a call to justification by faith alone, which has been all of Romans so far, and now sanctification by your work alone or by struggle alone. And so it's not telling us, okay, now your justification is secured in Christ by God's grace, now work really hard to be holy enough. I don't think that's at all what the passage is saying. And Romans 7, when we get there, is really going to help us with this. But it, what it's telling us is that, that if you are in Christ, you need to have a new view on yourself, that your identity itself has been changed. That your identity is first and foremost defined by him and by his resurrected life. That he is your Lord and King. And that when Jesus calls you and says, if you're going to come after me, you need to take up your cross daily, be willing to die for it, and give yourself up fully. But what has it ever profited a man if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? So you're laying yourself down in order to embrace him, but as one, as one theologian says, baptism then, what bapt the reason baptism is so helpful for us is because baptism is like a door between two rooms. That you are either in the room of you are in Adam or, or you're in the room you're in Christ and baptism is the pathway that we go into and in, in, step into Christ. And that Christ is the guarantee that our lives count for something. And so it's not a call to work harder to become more sanctified. The call on the Christian is live in light of your new identity and bring the values and, and the beauty of Christ's kingdom into life now. The work you do now matters for eternity. And the way you love others matters in the eyes of God and for eternity. So as N.T. Wright said, what you do in the Lord is not in vain. You are not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You're not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown on a fire. You're not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself. You are accomplishing something that will become, in due course, part of God's new world. And so this Easter Sunday, we find ourselves in a strange time an unprecedented use of the word unprecedented, but it feels like everything is. And it's helpful to remember that Christianity is not just a religion that was thought up. It's not just a bunch of rites and traditions. When we celebrate Easter, this isn't just because it's what we've done, and so we put on big hats and fancy clothes, and I'll get, go to be seen the first Easter Sunday, the disciples were all locked in a house together. They were isolated. They were scared. They were mourning. They were grieving. They were confused. Everything was uncertain. Their lives had been turned upside down. They were afraid and shaken by the reality of death. They had lost a friend and a loved one, their teacher and leader. Their, they, they were locked away in this house, much like we find ourselves today. And if Jesus conquered death and rose that Sunday, it changes everything and gives us hope that death is not the final word, that light really did break through the darkness, that life really broke the reign of sin and death. And so today we celebrate with rooted hope that Jesus is alive. He is risen. He's risen indeed. Father, I pray right now that you would move in our hearts to believe it. I pray for all of those who are hearing your word today, that are singing these songs. I pray right now that you would move by your spirit 
even in these strange and uncertain times, to soften our hearts, to open our eyes, to create a pathway for us to finally lay down what we've been clinging to that keeps us from embracing you fully and to let it go so that we can embrace the unity with Jesus fully in his death and burial and baptism, being raised to life with him, looking ahead to time when we'll, we'll be with him, ascended into glory as you, re, as you renew and restore the heavens and the earth in all things where there will be no more sickness or groaning or crying or pain or sorrow or death anymore, that Christ really is the first fruits from among the dead. And so I pray that you would turn our hearts in repentance and faith today. We pray this in the name of Christ, our risen Lord and Savior. Amen.